This is Do Good and Do Well with me, Sarah Fox, the podcast where we explore how you can help make positive change in the world without losing yourself. Hi everyone and welcome to the Do Good and Do Well podcast with me, Sarah Fox, a coach, mentor, mother and one-time majorette. In this podcast, we explore what it is to be an ambitious change maker without being all consumed in an unhealthy way by the work itself. You're listening to episode 35 and today you'll be hearing from writer, facilitator and coach Mark Robinson. First things first, I have a little favour to ask. If I asked you on a scale of 1 to 10 what your work-life balance was like, so 1 is what life, Sarah, or 10 is, uh, it's very balanced, thank you very much. What would you say? So I've got some exciting plans brewing and I'm looking to get some feedback from about three to five purpose-led leaders and change makers who score themselves seven or less on that life-work balance. If this sounds like you and you'd be willing to help me out, help me do a sense check on this new programme, then please do email me or send me a DM. You can find out how to do that in the show notes. So now the bit you've all been waiting for, Sarah's suggestion. So I often hear myself and my clients saying things like, I don't have time. I don't have time for that. I don't have time for this. I can't do that. I just don't have time. Laura Vanderkamp writes about time management and in her TED talk in 2016, she talked about how we can find the time for what matters most. I will put the link to that TED talk in the show notes. So she says we have 168 hours in each week. So what are we doing with it? And the key to time management isn't about trying to save little bits of time, but it's by really prioritising what we do with our time. So when we say things like I don't have time, that usually means it's not a priority. We are not prioritising this. As a coach, I work with clients on this a lot, figuring out what they really want, why it matters, and then supporting them to take action. And really identifying the want, or another way of thinking about it is your desire, is really crucial. Because when you say you don't have time, or you can't do that because you don't have time, Are you really saying that you don't want to do that? And if you don't want to do that, you won't have the motivation to do that. And that connection to motivation is really important. If it is something we really, truly want, we will more likely take action. So notice when you say, I don't have time. Notice when you're using time as an excuse not to do something because actually you don't really want to do it. You know, get curious about whether it is something you don't want to do or is time really the issue or is it something else? Another way of 
looking at this time dilemma is to really examine the belief around not having enough time. We will often create stories for ourselves to confirm our beliefs, to confirm what we're thinking. So being able to differentiate between the facts or the fiction can be really, really helpful. Now, a way of doing this around time is to track what you do on a day-to-day basis, on an hour-to-hour basis even. I use an app called Toggle Track. I think there are some others available, but I use it to track how I use my time, how I use my personal time, how I use the time in my business. And I do it every so often because it really helps me to gather some proper data about how much time I'm using really well and how much time I might be faffing away on social media and things like that. So give it a go. Let me know if it resonates. Let me know if you try the tracking app and if it is helpful. So now it's time to introduce my lovely guest, Mark Robinson. Mark is the founder of Thinking Practice, through which he writes, facilitates, coaches and advises across the cultural sector. He founded Thinking Practice in 2010 after being Executive Director for Arts Council England in the North East. He is also a widely published poet and he's just recently published a new book, Tactics for the Tightrope, Creative Resilience for Creative Communities, which has been published by Future Art Centres. It was such a pleasure talking to Mark on the podcast and listen to his experiences. I hope you enjoy and here's our chat. Hello, Mark, and welcome to the Do Good and Do Well podcast. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I sent a draft report off to somebody yesterday, so I am in that post hitting one deadline and seeing what the next one's coming over the horizon is spell. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good, thank you. Nice to be here. Brilliant. Oh, it's so nice, isn't it, when you can tick that off your list? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very, yeah. Very good. What would you like people to know about you? Well, where to start? Almost everything I'd like them to know. I'm a middle-aged white man of working-class extraction, but probably no longer. I'm a dad and a granddad. I I read and I write and I listen a lot. I think sometimes I think reader, writer, listener should be my job title. I've always done that. And I work right across the cultural sector um, and have done for nearly 30 years now. Before that, I was a a chef and a head chef in vegetarian catering, which is where I learned most of my management skills in the Mm. kitchen. As I say, I am a writer. I started off as a poet, editing poetry magazines, putting on poetry readings was how I kind of came into the arts. Um, So I like a metaphor. After I'd been speaking at a conference once, somebody on Twitter called me a bit metaphor-tastic. Um, which which was not meant as a compliment, I don't think. Um, but it's you know it's a fair cop, you know. That's that you just I've just got to roll with that. So yeah, I, I, I like a metaphor, uh, and I'm a bit of a, a bricoleur, as as French would say. You know, I'm a, an odd job man. I like putting things together from the things that are are at hand, rather than being a specialist and an expert in a particular field. 
Mm. So, yeah, that's probably more than enough. Mm. You mentioned that in your book, actually, which you haven't mentioned. Um, I haven't mentioned it. We'll come on to <laughs> yeah. that. I'm holding that uh, back for suspense. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and I really like that, that way of describing it, getting curious about what's around you and then sort of picking up the bits you need that can create and solve problems and I really like that description and I really love a metaphor I mean I'm a coach so metaphors are just so handy (laughs) when we're thinking about our own lives they are well the book uh, now you mentioned it it's called tactics for the tightrope which is a metaphor in itself and I use the image of the tightrope uh or a multiplying number of tightropes that people in the cultural sector are on. It's not about any individual. It's about us all being up there or down here helping or watching. I do talk about that because in a way, the tactics part of that title comes from when you perhaps are not in the most powerful position, it's sometimes more effective to be tactical than to adopt a, a very clear plan. You have to be able to to adapt. You have to be able to use the system against itself. You have to be able to pick up things and, and use them. And that's, yeah, that's very much the the way that my, I suppose my brain has, has worked over the years. And I've been able to sort of switch, uh, or I have chosen to switch tacks a few times within within the, the, the broad journey to, yeah, pick things up from what was what was at hand. And, and that's always been how I've worked, um, you know, both literally and, and, and metaphorically, I suppose. I started off, as I mentioned, one of my first proper, wasn't a profession, wasn't being paid, although I did eventually get a li- little bits of, of grant money from uh, Yorkshire and Humberside Arts, as it was at the time, um, was a poetry magazine and a press. But essentially, when I started publishing poetry collections of people's poetry, I, I got a long arm stapler for my birthday, I was about 25, from my my uh, wife's grandmother. She bought I had a long arm stapler and I, I, I used my mother-in-law's photocopier and I photocopied, stapled, folded books by hand uh, because mm-hmm. I couldn't really afford to get them done properly. So it was very much, um, yeah, that was very much um, uh, about using what I had, what I could get my hands on. So to get the ideas out. And to a certain degree, I'd say I'm still doing that. Mm. Not Just not with the long arm stapler, although I still have it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I still have it. Yeah, yeah. There was something you said then about using tactics to sometimes you might need to change direction. And, and I wonder, when you think back over your career and what you've done, how often have those changes in directions been intentional that you said, right, okay, where I am isn't quite working, I need to change direction? Or is it kind of foisted upon you? Or is it both? I think for me, it's probably been a combination of both. For me, it's not been about being reactive purely to to circumstance, but about trying to find the right opportunities and the the right doors and the right ways of being. And sometimes that's not always worked for me, to be perfectly honest. So, you know, I left university without, well, I had a very clear plan, but it wasn't particularly something that had come about because of my degree, did English and French uh, at at Liverpool and and then set off to become a vegetarian vegan chef in London. Uh, And this was 1987. So, you know, this was when vegetarian and vegan restaurants were not 
on every street <laughs> in London. <laughs> That's for sure. There were about three of us in the whole of, of the capital at the time. Um, and I did that and uh, up in York after that for, for a number of years. And, and, you know, seriously, you know, it was, it was a serious commitment to, to, to that. But eventually I realised that I wanted to, to spend more of my time thinking about the poetry, thinking about the arts. And, and it took me a couple of goes to find, a, find an interview panel gullible enough to give me a go. Um, uh, and it was a panel where I, on the day I was met by somebody who said, oh, you're the chef. Um, and, you know, with hindsight, I look back and I think I must have just been a bit of a wild card on that shortlist. Kind of, oh, well, shall we give this guy a go? He's done something, but he's, you know, he's not really working in this field. I was, was doing bits of teaching, youth centre type stuff. And I did that for a long time, but I, and I got, but I, uh, it turned into a semi-freelance, semi-paid uh, role and, and that wasn't working. And I talk about that in the book, actually, yeah. financially and for the family. It just wasn't working. There was a holiday where we came back. I opened about six letters from the bank and by the time I'd opened them, I was several hundred quid worth off because they'd been bouncing checks whilst mm. we'd been away. Then your, your younger listeners can Google what bouncing checks means. <laughs> but in those days, you know, that was, that was a real issue. And that made me yeah. think, actually, something needs to give here because what I was getting wasn't worth all of that pain, let's call it that, or strain. And roughly about the same time, I think, the director post at where I was for half the week came free. I got, I managed to to, to get that job, um, uh, and you know that was a really stressful job. Actually, working in community arts in Teesside was pretty hard work. And I made a wrong turn. Telling the story of my life here now, but nice. <laughs> I made I made a wrong turn into universities. I was working in adult education, and I got in a job in a university that wasn't the right job, wasn't the right place for me. And got completely kiboshed by the system uh, at the time. I applied for a job at Northern Arts um, as a head of department and, and got that. And that led to spending 10 years in the funding system, um, which wasn't really something I'd set out to do. Mm. But I learned a huge amount from it and through various bits of... <laughs> I rode the, rode the rafts of Arts Council reorganisations at times. You know, there were various times it looked like I might be... Uh, getting booted out along the way, not for me specifically, but as part of reorganisations. Yeah. Um, but did that for 10 years. Um, but then decided that I needed to change again. I wasn't, I wasn't getting everything I needed in that position, that place mm -hmm. in terms of satisfaction. So for me, it's always been a bit of a sort of makes, I don't know whether that makes it sound a bit floaty, but it, it's not felt like that. But it's always been about what have I learned that I want to put into practice in the next place. Mm. When I look back, I think that's probably what's driven those changes has always been. I'm one of those people that when I can do something, I'm not necessarily interested in being able to do it to, mm. you know, grade eight or PhD or whatever, yeah. but I can do it. Okay, what's the next thing that I can to a reasonable standard and get something out of. Mm. Um, that's sort of how my my instincts work. Yeah. It's it's interesting hearing that. You, you said, I'm not getting what I need out of this place now. Mm -hmm. When you talked about moving into higher education, it was, you know, it wasn't the place for me. And and there's a real sense that you, you kind of know yourself, you know what you're looking for 
within a particular place, within a particular workplace or work situation. And then you talked about instinct. Mm. You know, really, It's really instinct-driven. And what I notice quite often is there's a disconnect between what people really want and what they're what they're doing and a lack of feeling like they can act i think people do have instincts but it's the acting mm-hmm. on the instinct that makes the difference do you feel like that's something that you just have innately or or can you learn to do that did you learn to get better to connect with your instinct i definitely learned it i was quite a timid young person really when i look back at you know sixth form university years I wasn't somebody who pushed myself forward either artistically or in any other you know I wasn't a leader in inverted commas um then but I think that over time and I suppose probably particularly after we hit the kids you know I think that was a formative part of learning of, of my reflection actually was mm. was becoming a parent and you know we became parents relatively young mid-20s um you know young by contemporary standards in some ways um but that for me was a really formative thing and gave me a lot of I suppose I drew some confidence from it and then I became a more reflective person in my work mm. so I definitely you know some of what I was describing there is probably hindsight but um I definitely came to understand myself better a lot particularly in those years with the Arts Council, actually. That was probably the, the spell where it sort of started to make sense in a way and be a bit less frustrating to me because I suppose there is also a bit of me that's always, well, I'm a bit frustrated now. Let's see what the next thing can mm-hmm. be. Not that I think that will solve everything. You know, I'm not, not on the hunt for the perfect situation because I don't really believe in those. What does do good and do well mean for you i think for me it's about being useful and that actually is both about doing good and feeling useful be useful and feel useful are are, are really important to, to me i'm not interested in solving people's problems for them but in helping people find their own way to live their purpose and values that's you know sort of the heart of what I do when I work with people and when I write about the sector, as I've done in the book, it informs the way that, that I write um, because I'm, I'm more interested in going, this is the framework I found useful. Here are some tools, play with them, find your own way, cross out the bits that don't feel right for you. Much more interested in that than I am in these are the six steps, follow them and your, you know, happiness awaits. Be useful, but don't own other people's actions. Help them live their purpose and values. Stay interested. I'm happiest when I'm learning. Get paid was part, part you know, when I, when I took the risk of, of going back freelance 11 years ago, um, both kids were about to go through university in that spell. You know, it was a bit of a jump. But it was a different jump than when I'd been in my early 30s. So that was part of the picture. You know, so be useful, stay interested, don't get bored, um, get paid a, a, um, uh, to, a, to, a, to a degree um, of being my kind of key. You know, that's my business plan, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, really. I, uh, I, you know, I don't have a business plan. Um, uh, I sometimes feel a bit, you know, I, I always tell, when people come and say, Mark, will you help us write a business plan? I'm like, 
you sure you need one? Yeah, um, I don't sometimes have a people plan do. Either. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I've got a, I've got a half written one from eleven years ago. If anybody wants <laughs> yeah. it, but. <laughs> but yeah, there's so much in there that you said that I want to respond to. I mean, I think I I haven't read all the book, but it comes through so clearly your sense of this is my experience here I am sharing it take what you need what will stick will stick what you don't need you can just let go of that came across very strongly in the book and I love that because that's that's how I feel about the work that I'm doing in terms of do good and do well I talk a little bit about what's happened to me and I share experience I ask other people to share their experiences but we are who we are and our lives can never be exactly the same so to say that you have to do a b c and d and then it will all work out is false i think and and can be very misleading what i also loved about the book is there's a real and you talked about this in your description of doing good and doing well there's a real call to action around directing the working culture within culture mm-hmm. so that sense of hang on a minute we need to sort out this lack of flexibility. We need to sort out these this unpaid labour. We need to sort out these long hours. We need to sort out these access issues. And all of those things, and you know, and there's more, all of those things contribute to this idea of doing good and doing well. Like how mm-hmm. do we not sacrifice ourselves in the process of of kind of fulfilling our purpose and living our values? That's where I became interested in resilience because for me, it's both a property of individuals, but I'm more interested in it as a property of systems mm-hmm. and of cultures rather than the kind of, you know, forcing people to be more resilient so they can put up with more yeah. unhealthy behaviours from other people or from other forces. And that's what I tried to, to describe in the book, but how different, how we will all be resilient within those systems and change those systems is going to be very different depending on our makeup our position, and and so on. Although I set out sets of characteristics for people to think about their own resilience and the resilience of their organizations and networks and so on, based on resourcefulness and and, and capabilities, um, how those manifest in me or in you or in another, you know, in any organizations that we might work in, will will look very different. I'm not interested in everybody looking the same as all having the same sort of shop and the same sort of offer. You know, that's, that's, that's not what culture's about for me. It is about making culture and passing on the tools to make it. If I teach somebody poetry as I used to, I don't anymore, but you know, I'm not interested in them writing poems like I do. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's about them finding the way to, to make their own work. And and that's 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 the heart of it for me. And part of that is we can only do that when we think about our own power. Some people respond negatively to the word resilience because it can feel foisted upon you. Yeah. Uh, and I understand that feeling, but I still find it a, a useful thing because it goes back to I might not have much, right? But what have I got? And how can I use it? That's often the starting point for a conversation with an an artist or a a tiny organization is, you know, what have you got Mm. to play with? What have you written? What have you, what's your track record? Who do you know? What are your networks? What's your situation? 
and so on. And then you can start from that rather than this, than a kind of mythical picture of start from the particulars. Mm. That's very much how I work with, with, with people because it has to fit the human beings. Mm. Yeah. When I worked as head of creative programs with People United, one of our key one of the key parts of our methodology was starting with what we've got you know we're going into mm-hmm. communities what is it we have what are our assets what are what are we brilliant at already what are the amazing stories that we already have rather than starting from a deficit what's what's yeah, wrong absolutely. with us like we want to be over there but oh look at the gap look at the gap we don't have any of that stuff but really looking at our landscape and and I do that with coaches and I think the best artists that I work with have that ability to go in and see what's really positive in a place. I'm curious about where has the drive come from where you're saying, you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna do this for you. I want I want you to be able to solve problems for yourselves, be who you are. Can you pinpoint where that has come from, where that drive has come from? That's a really good question. Well, it's, there's two things. One, one that, that makes me laugh slightly, which is we have a sort of catchphrase in, in, my, in my family, which um, is that I would, I, 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 I quote my, something my mum used to say when she didn't want to get into an argument with me as an opinionated teenager, which was, it wouldn't do for us all to be the same. Um, <laughs> was one of my mum's catchphrases. She had many, um, uh, but but I do think that's you know there's more truth in it than I might have given her credit for at the time. But I suppose more seriously, I think I might trace it back to that decade working at the Arts Council, where I was certainly seen when I got that job at Northern Arts. You know, a few writer and publisher friends of mine. So, you know, it was poacher turned gamekeeper. Um, going to head up the literature and film department and, and manage the funding. Um, and, and then, you know, through various twists and turns, I, be, I was the exec director for the Northeast for the last five years of my time there and part of the national exec board. So I, I had potentially influential roles um, uh, there. I, I think I did have some influence on various things. But there's always a danger as a funder, that you start to think that you know better than the people you're funding, um, that, oh, if only people would do the sensible thing and align themselves with our strategies, the world would be a much better place. Um, uh, oh, if only this board would, you know, do X, you know, d- do what we think they ought to do. And there were times, I'm sure, where I was part of that funder behavior but I suppose I learned over that decade, and there was also, you know, there's an internal thing of that as well, you know, if only those other people in the organization would do what I think we ought to do and stop, yeah. you know, laughing about, et cetera. And I think over that decade, I learned that that kind of clarity is about what you believe and what your reading is. It's absolutely essential to share, but not necessarily to impose. Because the imposition changes the effect. <laughs> uh, that's not to say I don't think, you know, that funders and others should be really tough and stretching on their targets for change, like people have tried around 
diversity of the workforce, for instance, and, and equality. I think we absolutely need to be tough and stretching on that, but how people deliver those will vary. And I suppose I just became clear that the best, I mean, in a way, it's about adopting a coaching style. Mm, <laughs> the, be yeah. the best way to get people to take ownership is to adopt that coaching style. And I trained as a coach just as I was leaving the Arts Council. And I, it was one of those kind of classic, God, I wish I'd done this 10 years ago <laughs> yes. kind of moments, <laughs> yes. um, you know, because I would have done a better job. <laughs> so I did that. I did some other training that really helped me with that, that led me to that road outside the cultural sector. You know, so I, I've done most of my kind of big leadership training experiences, not simply in the cultural sector, but, you mm. know, so I did Common Purpose in Teesside. Oof in the last century, alongside people from all other sectors. And that was a really important experience mm. for me. And I did, when I was at Arts Council, I did a, 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 a National School of Government leadership thing, which again, I was the only arts person on that cohort, senior civil servants, people from private sector. And I could see that, and some of them had very directive styles that I could see w didn't work for the kind of complexity that, that I think we, we're all grappling with, whatever sector we work in. I don't think you can do that top-down command control things if you think the world's a complex place. Mm. Mm. That was a bit of a long answer, but I, I, I think it's probably that experience of being at a particular point in the system. We no, some of that. Yeah, it's, I, I think lots of people will be able to look at their own history and see that it's the same that you have these particular well obviously you have experiences that inform how you think and what you believe and um i, th I think it's really fascinating i was thinking about your mum's phrase what was it it wouldn't do us, it wouldn't it do for do us for, it's all to be the to same be the same which is brilliant and i might use that with my children <laughs> so thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Um, but what you was what what really resonated with me when you were talking then was the piece about going outside of the sector. I've worked in not for profit for a long time. <clears throat> most of that has been in the art sector, mm. not always, but most of it. Coming out of it has been so revelatory. I think we can all get a bit narrow-minded. Isn't the right word? I can't mm -hmm. think of the right word. But we. Um, we get our blinders on and forget that there's this whole other world outside. And I, I'm talking a lot to people who used to work in the corporate sector mm -hmm. and I hear the same thing in what they say as well in terms of in the corporate sector, it's like this, this, this. You work really long hours. There's a lot of pressure. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's the same for the not-for-profit sector, except, <laughs> you know, pay is, is a big issue there as well. But I think that ability to be able to engage with, have relationships with, build partners with organisations, individuals outside of the cultural sector as well is so important because it, brings a different perspective and reminds us um, that this might be really controversial, but the arts are not the be-all and the end-all of, you know, the whole of the world as much, as much as I care about them and love them. There's other stuff, you know, education, health. There's so many things that we can yeah. learn from those sectors. I think that's absolutely right. I think putting things into into that perspective i think i've carried that with me since i 
joined the arts professionally because I didn't start working in the arts professionally till I was 28, mm. nearly 29. So I'd worked in another job. And as I have been known to say to people learning about how poorly paid the arts are, when I left catering and joined the arts as the low, one of the lowest paid people in the organization, my pay still went up. Um, you know, the arts is not the only, you know, low pay is an issue. There's no, yeah. and low reward is an issue. There's no doubt about it, but it's not the only place where people do that. There are different expectations of what education and experience you bring in, which I think, you know, makes it, as some people have pointed out recently, you know, a low, a low paid job for rich people to come mm. into. But yeah. I've carried that different experience with me. I think, although I don't talk about it, hugely explicitly in the book is definitely there in some of the frameworks in, in, in tactics for the tightrope, that idea of being a leaders working inside the organization, outside in the sector and beyond in the world and the social world. And, you know, if there's three verbs for people to take from the book, it is that in that section on leadership around connect, collaborate, multiply, Mm. that's absolutely about getting both within the cultural sector, but also beyond it. Because um, if we don't get beyond it, we end up with a very finely tuned machine for serving a very small number of people. And that has some benefits, but it has a lot of drawbacks from where I've always sat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you on that. In terms of do good and do well, do you have any top tips? How can you, how can you, how do you keep yourself well in this world, particularly with the pandemic? Yeah, well, take a break. Um, I, and I should say, there were one of the, one of the key phrases towards the end of the book, the recommendations is keep some slack. Slack's a really mm. important concept in resilience. Keep some slack for yourself and the system. And there were, points when I was proofreading the book and finalizing the design um, at 5.30 in the morning before doing a work where I, every time I read that sentence, I wanted to slap myself around the face. Um, yeah. And it, it still echoes occasionally. And I, I have just worked all weekend before, before doing this. So I'm by no means a, a paragon in, in this respect, but take a break. I mean, for me, that might be you work every day, but you don't necessarily work 12 hours a day. If I want to take 15 minutes and sit and play the guitar, I don't feel guilty about it. (laughs) So taking small breaks works for me. And I think the other thing is, two two other things to say about One is to make yourself useful. Be useful to yourself and to others. Will help you do, do good and do well. And the other thing is to make space for others. Invite others in, as you've done with this podcast, as I'm trying to do you know, most of the talks I'm doing around the book, I'm inviting other people in to talk about it with me mm. or to talk about their practice that relates to some of the themes in the book. So it's not um, just all about me, but, you know, taking up space is quite an important thing for individuals to do. Yeah. But equally, and particularly as a, a middle-aged white man, you know, I've, it was quite a struggle to take up my own space, but I've had my shares. I've got my share of space now, and I need to pass it on to somebody. Mm. Um, it's not. To, I don't think it's not about feeling guilty when you take up space, but it's about using it to bring others in, and so that they can have have theirs. So for me, that's also a thing about wellness and a thing about doing good. Mm. 
Take a have, break, be useful, be useful and make space for others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're all um, really important points. And the point about the slack, that's if anyone's been watching the Ted Lasso series. Yeah, I haven't it, seen it. It's so, so brilliant. Apple. It's so brilliant. But there is a point where they're talking about giving ourselves slack um, okay. and, you know, just essentially being kinder to ourselves and not beating ourselves up. And I think that is so important because there's so much judgment. <laughs> and I bang on about this all the time on this podcast that we judge ourselves so harshly. So giving ourselves slack is really important as well. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining me no, on the podcast. Pleasure. How can people find out more about you, get access to the book? Tell us all the things. Right. Well, um, yeah, find out about me by reading the book, which is called Tactics for the Tightrope, subtitled Creative Resilience for Creative Communities. It's published by Future Arts Centres, so if you go on the Future Arts Centres website, futureartscentres.org.uk, you can either order a lovely paperback book or you can uh, now download a free um, digital copy. Um, book's been made available through Creative Commons so people can adapt it. And we felt, although the book is only a mere £10 plus postage and packing, <laughs> we didn't want anyone to be excluded. So we've made a digital version available for only for the exchange of your email, which we won't do anything nefarious with, honest. <laughs> so go to the Future Art Centre's website or tacticsforthetightrope.com, set up a little mini site there. And you can find out um, uh, more about me from the Thinking Practice website, thinkingpractice.co.uk. Um, I've talked about that, but in a way that, that name, Thinking Practice, is about the two sides of, mm. of what I do. Um, and when I set up as a consultant, I needed a name because Mark Robinson is, in all senses of the word, a very common name. So to have any for anyone to find me, I needed a, a bit of a distinguisher. So you can do that and sign up to the newsletter, Tactics for the tightrope.substack.com. Um, uh, and you'll get something every month. Uh, and you can read the other, if you really want the in-depth version of me, you can read the poetry books as well, which are still available. You can find those through the Thinking Practice website. Uh, thank you. And you're so generous in terms of what you share to do the digital download of the book and, and your newsletter. You're You're giving it away for people to use. I think that's, yeah, really great. Thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just been... For me, that's part of living my purpose and values. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to write these things if other people didn't share their time, their insights with me. And so there is a thing of passing it on. For me, that again, that's, that, that goes back to the heart of what culture is for me. It's a making something that you then pass on so that people can make it themselves. Mm. There's a great poem by um, the American poet Gary Schneider. Um, called axe handles which is partly about continuity but for me it's about culture if you have an axe and one person replaces the head and then the next person replaces the the handle is it still the same axe <laughs> as it was at the beginning and you know i think in his poem he's suggesting it is for me that's a that's, a, that's an image of culture mm. that we we just keep passing it passing it on mm. What a lovely way to end this episode. Thank you so much, Mark. Take good no, care. No, my pleasure. You too. 
Thank you so much to Mark Robinson for joining me and sharing his thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review or a star rating or mention us on your social media. You can find me pretty much everywhere on at Sarah Fox Coach. And for more tips, ideas and thoughts and a weekly reminder that you matter too, sign up for my newsletter. Take very good care. <laughs>